Welcome to the Res Life Podcast with Dr. Chris Riley and Dr. Alex Schuper, the medical podcast for those at any stage in the medical field, from pre-med students through attending physicians and anyone else who wants to learn more about the field of medicine. Make sure to subscribe, like, and comment on this video to provide feedback on medical topics you would like to learn more about. All right, everybody, welcome to the Res Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Riley, and as always, I'm with Dr. Alex Schuper today. Uh, this is episode 10. What an exciting time. Can't believe it. It's been a long road. Uh, we've been, we've been MIA for a little bit. Uh, we've both been busy with some personal projects and, uh, you know, that thing called residency. Um, so today we're starting a new series, uh, and this series entails basically interviewing residents in different specialties and talking to them about why they actually chose the field um, what got them really interested into that specialty and how to go about achieving, uh, grabbing that sacred spot in a residency program for that specialty. So today we're going to start with a pretty, pretty advanced specialty. Uh, it's something my co-host knows a lot about and that's neurosurgery. So Dr. Schuper, what's going on? How are you doing today? Not much, Dr. Riley. Doing pretty well. Excited to be back. I know we've taken quite a hiatus. We've gotten some slack from our Instagram followers saying that we need to put out yeah. more episodes. That should be our New Year's resolution. So we promise, guys, we've been we've been working hard. We'll get it. We'll get this series out to you soon. And we're gonna be cranking through a few episodes. So you'll have uh, this new specialty series coming out, which I think you guys will enjoy. Yeah, we're gonna have everything from family medicine, orthopedics. Uh, ophthalmology, dermatology, all of the ologies uh, we will be going through. Um, these are a collection of our, you know, friends or people we've met through social media, um, as well as, you know, our colleagues. So I'm really excited about doing this program. And this is something that I've been thinking about for a very long time, and I know Dr. Schuper has as well. So Dr. Schuper, you want to uh, start off by telling us a little bit about the field of neurosurgery, like what what it is actually in a nutshell? Sure, absolutely. So we're going to start off, as Chris said, from the top down, literally, from neurosurgery and go all the way down to the feet. So start off with neurosurgery. It's pretty self-explanatory, but in terms of actual definition of the field, it's a specialty that pertains to the surgical management of diseases and disorders of the nervous system. Now, we'll go in in a few minutes about the nuances and more specifics of the specialty, but you can think of, of neurosurgery as the, the neurosciences in terms of diseases and disorders, and specifically surgical management, interventional management, versus the medical side of the neurosciences, which is primarily neurology. Yeah, I was going to say, could you expand a little bit on that? I know... Neurologists are, you know, the stroke specialists, but you guys are the ones that, you know, if there is uh, an MVO, they're they're coming up to you, and you're and you're pulling that clot out. You know, um, can you talk about that a little bit? Definitely. So it's it's quite the Venn diagram. There's actually a lot of overlap between neurology and neurosurgery, and for a lot of us who end up deciding to become neurologists or neurosurgeons, many of us are actually debating between the two fields. I had a lot of friends in medical school who were initially thinking about neurology and went to neurosurgery or vice versa. That's because at the end of the day, we treat the same 
the same organ system. We treat the brain, the spine, and the peripheral nervous system, which is essentially the, your nervous system. Um, again, there is a large overlap. Stroke is a great example of this. Uh, neurologists are integral in the management of stroke. They are the first ones to see the patient. When someone calls a code stroke, they're the first ones at the bedside. Um, and we actually, we, it's almost a misnomer, but we both perform interventions for stroke. So obviously, TPA is given primarily by neurologists. At other places, it's given by emergency medicine doctors or different specialists. But in terms of performing things like thrombectomies, uh, in the case of LVO, a large vessel occlusion, these can be performed by either a neurologist, a neurosurgeon, or a radiologist who receives neuroendovascular training. So there's actually a large overlap. In our department of neurosurgery, for example, we have several board-certified neurologists who then went on to do in a neuroendovascular fellowship to become a neuroendovascular surgeon. And the, some of these were neurology-trained uh, physicians. So there's a lot of overlap. Um, I would say stroke is the, the biggest example. Uh, really cerebrovascular in general, uh, you can go through the path of neurology into neuroendovascular and treat aneurysms, arteriovenous malformations, um, dural AV fistulas, any disorder of the cerebrovascular system that can be treated through endovascular means, which nowadays is the majority of them. Um, you can go into this subspecialty either through neurosurgery or neurology as well as radiology. Yeah, so... I know in the emergency department where I'm at, um, we're a stroke center, a comprehensive stroke center, and uh, we actually have teleneurologists that call in now. Um, they go through the NIH stroke scale um, with us as emergency medicine residents and doctors, and um, you know, based on their assessment and our assessment, we decide in that time field or that you know time window, can we push TPA or not? That's a whole nother discussion, but. Uh, I actually start my neurology rotation uh, next week, which is exciting. Um, I, I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about that field. Uh, so, Dr. Schuper, why don't you uh, give us a little, you know, background of why you actually chose neurosurgery? Absolutely. This is a question I get all the time from messages on every single neurosurgery residency interview. Uh, so... It's almost an exhausted, pre-recorded answer at this point, but uh, I, I've known for a very long time I was interested in surgery. My dad's an oral surgeon. I was always big on using my hands very tactile, love building things. Um, always was really drawn to the more interventional side, more procedural side of medicine than the diagnostic side. Um, so I would say I knew that I wanted to go into surgery before I knew neurosurgery. And then toward the end of high school, one of my close friends, uh, her dad died of a glioblastoma. This really opened my eyes up to the field of neuro-oncology, especially neurosurgery, because I saw the surgeons who were so compassionate with their father and ended up treating his glioblastoma. And then later on in high school, I ended up working for the neurosurgery department at the University of Pennsylvania as a research assistant in a traumatic brain injury study which ended up being one of the large studies in the 2000s called PROTECT, which was a phase three randomized control trial looking at the effect of IV progesterone on moderate to severe TBI. And like all the other drug trials, it failed, um, but it was a big paper in New England Journal, and it was a big trial, essentially one of the trials that uh, proved to everyone that 
traumatic brain injury is not a disease you can cure with one drug. That's a lot, a lot more complicated than that, a lot more, more heterogeneous than that. But this really marked, you know, it really sparked my fire as far as my interest in, in neurosciences. And so then moving on to college, I had the privilege of going to Hopkins where, you know, similar to Dr. Riley, we had a great education and we had amazing professors in all different specialties. And from my freshman year at Hopkins, I took an intro to neuroscience class from a very esteemed professor there, Dr. Linda Gorman, and just fell in love. I thought the brain and the nervous system was so fascinating, so interesting. I was really drawn to the fact that there's still so much we really don't understand about neuroscience and about the brain. And after that, it was, it was really a, a natural marrying of my interest in performing procedures and using my hands um, and performing surgery with my, my newly found interest in the neurosciences. So I started engaging in neuroscience research and neurosurgery research. When I was at Hopkins. I participated in some Parkinson's research through the Michael J. Fox Foundation, as well as learn more about brain tumors and neuro-oncology. And I really, truly knew before I went to medical school that I was interested in neurosurgery. And this is what I wanted to pursue in medical school. And that interest just kept snowballing and kept blossoming. And I kept doing, kept participating in more and more research opportunities in medical school. And when I finally had the chance to truly rotate on neurosurgery rotations, I knew that it was, it was the pace I was interested in. It was the type of patients I was interested in. The patients had uh, the diseases and disorders that I was fascinated by, both from a, an academic standpoint, from a research standpoint, as well as from a clinical standpoint. And I knew that I really wanted to devote my life to this. And the, these are the types of patients that I wanted to spend my, my days treating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about all the different research that you were in. You know, I think a lot of people are mystified by the whole um, how do I get involved in research and how do I do that? And how do I go about, you know, contacting people? And, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Cause you know, I, I have some limited research experience, but from my experience, I literally just reached out to people from our school. Um, and they were really nice, got back to me and they were like, yeah, absolutely. So is it, is it just that simple or is there a little bit more to it? I think that's a great point, Chris. I recently gave a talk to a bunch of pre-medical students, and this was something that came up repeatedly. And I feel like it's a huge, huge area of interest because being pre-med is really tough in that a lot of pre-med students want to get engaged in research but don't have the experience. So it's really hard to get over that initial hump because a lot of labs won't take you just because you don't have prior research experience, but it's that double standard of, well, I want to have research experience, but I don't currently have anything yet. I, so what I say to those students is you can't be afraid of failure. When I was at Hopkins during my second year, I remember during the winter, I blasted out probably about 50 emails to every single uh, attending surgeon in the neurosurgery department at Johns Hopkins, every single one. And now looking back, it's comical. I sent emails to Ben Carson, to George Jallo, to these titans of neurosurgery that I had no business emailing or even talking to. And I just probably had more confidence than I should have and just said, hey, I'm the second year neuroscience student at Johns Hopkins and I want to participate in research. I want to work in your lab. I would say 90% of them didn't respond to me uh, and the other 9% said no and one said yes and I took advantage of it. And so the biggest thing is you just can't be afraid of failure. Um, Mm -hmm. 
and loved it. Now a bunch of pre-med students have messaged me or reached out to me to try to get involved. And I try to do as much as I can to connect them. If not with me, then with someone who can, who has opportunities and meets their experience. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the key. You just can't be afraid of failure. You can't get one rejection or, or no response from someone to think, oh, that's, that's it. I can't do research. You just have to be persistent like everything in medicine. You just have to keep knocking at the door until it opens. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, the, just the topic of failure in general, we can go on about that all day long. And we I know think it very well. In, in, <laughs> anybody in the healthcare field can uh, for sure talk about failure. And if you guys think that all these, you know, because people like Dr. Schuper and I on social media, we, we talk about these things, but we know and we know you guys see it a lot on social media that everybody's got a perfect life and, you know, all doctors are these perfect people and they're so knowledgeable and whatever. That is not the case. All those people failed at some point in their career or on the road to their career um, or every day. <laughs> so, you know, these people are not perfect. We're not perfect. And, and we know that. And we embrace it. You have to embrace that failure to learn. Uh, and, and be better. But we'll talk about that in another podcast, uh, a different episode. Um, we'll talk about failure because it seems like uh, that's a topic people like to hear us talk about as well. So, uh, Dr. Schuper, why don't you talk about the timeline uh, on your road towards uh, neurosurgery from the pre-med days, which you've already discussed a little bit through med school, uh, and then all the way to the match into neurosurgery? Sure, Definitely. So it, it fits a lot of the standard time courses in terms of, obviously, you go to high school, you get into college, obviously, you're going to get into the best college possible or the college that makes the most sense for you and your family, whether financially, geographically, et cetera. And I would, what I urge pre-med students to do is if you know early on enough that you're interested in medicine, don't be scared to pursue those clinical and research opportunities. It's only going to help you, and it's going to help solidify if this is truly what you want to do. It's really hard if you have very limited clinical experiences before you go into medicine to know what you're interested in because you may have seen something on TV or on social media, but it isn't always the best representation of what that field and that specialty truly is like. It's a, I've had a bunch of pre-medical students ask me what they should do for their gap years, for example, I tell all of them, if you can get a really strong clinical experience, by all means do it. With the exception of if you need to up your GPA to be competitive or retake your MCAT, if, you're, if you have the time to get that clinical experience, it's so important. I know Chris, during his time off, was a medical scribe, and he gained a ton of clinical exposure experience during that time. It's, it's so important and just to get that clinical perspective that you're not going to have otherwise. That's, so that's, uh, that's, that's the knowledge gap too. When you first get into med school, if you were a scribe or you have any kind of clinical research experience, uh, experience at all, um, the, just the knowledge gap between you and the other first years is like pretty tremendous. Even just medical terminology, you just, you, you know, you, you're already there. Um, so I, I agree with that. And if you guys want to hear more about the gap year, we did a, uh, uh, an episode, uh, episode seven was on the gap year. Um, but yeah, why don't you uh, continue discussing the, your path? So I went straight through college. Uh, after college, I ended up taking a year off for different reasons, but I found a really great opportunity to 
be really at the ground level of a new startup company where we were developing an app that we are providing to surgical patients receiving surgery on all different areas of the body. And it was an app that helped organize them before, during, and after surgery. It's synced with their calendar, with uh, different apps in their phone, as well as their electronic health record to remind them to go to their post-op appointment, to take their medications, things like this. And it was a really great experience for me. <clears throat> I had an awesome time working on the health tech perspective of things, everything from sales to marketing to medical content. Uh, it was a really great experience. I also conducted research during that year as well. More than anything, it was just a year that differentiated myself. It was a year that I didn't do the same thing that the next guy or the next girl did. And when I talk to people about taking time off, that's what's really important is make a meaningful year for yourself and, and make it a year that you'd be proud of and a year that was really formative in your experience for becoming a doctor. And that's not specific to neurosurgery. That's anything you go into. I'm not saying you don't have to take gap year for a lot of people. It's not the right option, but if you are going to spend the year, make it count and make it meaningful. Again, we speak a lot more about this in the gap year episode in episode seven. So I highly recommend to check that out. But for me personally, it was, it was the right move doing a gap year. You know, Chris mm -hmm. spent some time as well. And for both of us, it ended up working out that just how the cards laid is that, you know, for us taking that time off and boosting our resumes in different ways were really important. So mm -hmm. highly recommend yeah. it. I don't know if you have anything to add about that, Chris. I was just going to say it helps you mature. It helps you um, really focus your energy uh, and really gives you that perspective on finding your tipping point and where you, you know, you are committed to medicine at that point. Um, but this is like the time for you to be like, all right, I've, added some things to my resume I have things to talk about that have added to who I am as an applicant overall um, so yeah that's that's pretty great so in terms of med school uh, you want to talk about that were there any like neurosurgical societies that you got involved with or you know can you talk Absolutely. about that for sure so again I I was kind of on the straight and narrow and I knew neurosurgery before even going to medical school so as soon as I got to campus I hit the ground running and I joined the neurosurgery interest group. I joined our two professional societies, the AANS and the CNS, which are the two neurosurgery societies in this country. Every specialty has their own. And I highly recommend that, get involved, learn as much as you can. Uh, I was also in the orthopedics interest group because I, I knew I like spine surgery. So you definitely don't have to be differentiated when you go to medical school. Uh, you know, but getting involved is the biggest thing for sure. And just making, you know, getting your name out there and getting the experience to gain perspective is the most important thing. I also started research very early in medical school. Highly recommend it just to establish projects early on that you can then carry out longitudinally. It's really important. Um, through med school, you figure out pretty early on, or at least a lot of people do, if they want to take time off or not, especially if they know what specialty they're interested in. Most people who go into neurosurgery do take time off. This is almost exclusively to bolster their research resume. Neurosurgery every single year without end has, if not the highest, one of the highest publication averages in terms of the match. The year I applied, the average applicant had 17 publications, which is a good amount 
compared to family medicine is probably two or three. So huge difference. And because of that, uh, no one really cares if you take a year off, two years off, or no years off. What they care about is what does your research pedigree look like? What labs have you worked in? What projects have you been on? How many first author publications? These are the numbers that matter the most in neurosurgery. Um, in addition to your board scores and letter recommendation and sub-internship performance and all the other things. But what differentiates neurosurgery is the academic productivity. Yeah. I was, I was going to, I just wanted to add to this, you know, if you guys, um, cause it's taking on a lot of things at once, you need to make sure that you are able to handle the workload in medical school. Uh, and if you can handle it, then you add these things. Um, for sure. You know. And that's so important. I'm glad you brought that mm -hmm. up because I have talked to many other medical students and pre-medical students about this is no one cares if you've published 20 papers, if yeah. you didn't do well on your boards, because mm -hmm. because if you didn't do well on your boards, they're never going to see those 20 papers because you're never going to pass the filters to actually get anyone to actually look at your resume. Mm -hmm. So school comes first. You have to take care of the boards and your homework first, and then you can focus on research and all the other extracurriculars. So that's a great thing to keep in mind. And I talk to this also about with pre-medical students all the time, we're looking for research opportunities. I've had actually a couple of meds, pre-medical students recently tell me, hey, I'm studying for the MCAT right now. Can I get some research projects with you? First thing I tell them is crush the MCAT, focus on the MCAT right now. I'm not going anywhere. If you want to come back in three months after you take the MCAT and we can do research, you can go to town and spend 12 hours a day working on research for me. But before, it's more important that you take care of business on the MCAT because if you don't, you're not going to get into medical school. And then all this research experience is for nothing. So, you know, it's really important to remember you can't put the cart before the horse. You, got, you have to take care of school. You have to take care of your grades. These are the most important things. Research in neurosurgery and any other specialty is the cherry on top. And that's what ends up differentiating you and making you a stronger applicant. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great points. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about subspecialties in neurosurgery? Um, yeah, let's do and, it. You know, if, if you're going to get involved in any of these subspecialties? Sure. So there are a bunch of subspecialties in neurosurgery, not unlike other specialties. In the next episode, we'll talk about all the different subspecialties of emergency medicine, like wilderness, hyperbarics, et cetera. Neurosurgery is no different. We are divided into the two areas, really three, but the two major areas of the nervous system that we treat, the brain and the spine, and the diseases and disorders that come from them. So some of the major subspecialties in neurosurgery, starting from spine, there's minimally invasive, which is where we operate mostly through a tube or using different MIS techniques. Um, we also have deformity surgery, complex deformity, which includes you know, big scoliosis wax, these huge uh, constructs that you see. Um, we have neurosurgical oncology. This includes both brain and spine tumors, most commonly spinal cord tumors, uh, but not always. And then Brain tumors in neurosurgical oncology primarily is reserved for malignant brain tumors, meaning something like a glioma and not a meningioma, for example, or metastatic tumors. Um, metastatic tumors are also the most common tumor of the brain, fun fact. So these are something, these are types of tumors that we often deal with in neurosurgical oncology. 
skull-based surgery is very common. It's a, a major specialty, subspecialty in neurosurgery, especially at academic centers. Skull-based surgery includes both anterior skull base, which it nowadays is primarily transnasal surgery, uh, most commonly surgery uh, to resect tumors of the pituitary gland, CSF leaks such as encephalocele or meningocele. Um, we work very closely in skull-based surgery with our ENT colleagues. Uh, for anterior skull-based approaches, like for pituitary access, uh, they often are the ones who do the approach for the surgery. Uh, very important, so anterior skull base and then lateral skull base. So accessing the millcranial fossa um, as well as posterior fossa. So posterior fossa skull base surgery would include things like an acoustic neuroma or vestibular schwannoma, some people call them, um, an epidermoid cyst. Any, any tumors of the CP angle or the cerebellar pontine angle that are accessed through a suboccipital or retrosigmoid approach uh, are typically employed by skull-based surgeons. Cool. So skull-based is big. Um, I would say one of the biggest, if not the biggest after spine uh, subspecialties nowadays is cerebrovascular. This now includes both open cerebrovascular as well as endovascular neurosurgery. We talked in the beginning of this episode about how endovascular neurosurgeons can come from one of three specialties, neurosurgery, neurology, or radiology. Open cerebrovascular neurosurgeons are only neurosurgeons. Obviously, they, they perform open surgery. Cerebrovascular uh, neurosurgeons treat conditions such as stroke. This includes both ischemic or hemorrhagic strokes um, that need neurosurgical intervention. Um, they, they include things like thrombectomy or stent placement or things like um, carotid stenosis diseases like this, or atherosclerosis like ICAD, uh, moya-moya disease, aneurysms, cavernous malformations, AVMs, AV fistulas, vein-to-gill malformations, you name it. All, all the bad things with your vessels. All the bad things with your vessels <laughs> the in the brain the or the spinal cord. These, these are all conditions treated uh, by cerebrovascular neurosurgeons. Um, pediatrics is a huge specialty as well. Um, obviously, it goes without saying, but Pediatric neurosurgeons treat pediatrics, treat children uh, who have both the same and different neurosurgical conditions that adults have. There's, for example, there's certain types of brain tumors that primarily only affect children, um, such as uh, certain types of germ cell tumors. Uh, But then again, kids can also get glioblastoma just like adults can. Um, So uh, pediatrics is also very popular in the subspecialty of epilepsy. Um, there are a not insignificant number of children who suffer from epilepsy, and while many are undertreated, many children who suffer from especially temporal lobe epilepsy are actually surgical candidates and can have a life cure of epilepsy through surgery, even though, unfortunately, currently in this country, only 1% of children who have a surgically accessible foci of epilepsy actually make it to a neurosurgeon's office. So it's a huge underrepresented population that we're currently working on with our epileptologists to improve education um, to hopefully cure more children of epilepsy. Additionally, there are two more subspecialties I just want to make mention. One is functional neurosurgery. Again, epilepsy surgery is a huge part of this. I'm sure many of you have heard of DBS or deep brain stimulation surgery. 
Historically, this was used for conditions like Parkinson's disease or essential tremor, dystonia. However, now we've expanded the role to OCD and even depression. And we're expanding the role even more of different uses for ZBS surgery. Then finally is peripheral nerve surgery. So an important thing to keep in mind is that the majority of your nervous system is outside of your central nervous system, that you have a whole enteric nervous system in your gut, which has more neurons than in your head, that all of your fingers and toes move because of your nervous system. So any lesion or disorder of your peripheral nervous system that warrants surgical intervention, we take care of. Examples are peripheral nerve sheath tumors, uh, different types of schwannomas. Um, for example, patients with NF1 who have uh, peripheral schwannomas, uh, we can take care of um, if they're causing pain or neurological deficit. So these are all different types of, of neurosurgery. So as you can see, the field is very vast. You, we treat many different types of conditions depending on if you like to be in the IR suite or if you like to be in the OR, if you like to use a robot in functional neurosurgery or you like to spend hours doing back-breaking work, breaking someone's back, you can, uh, you can be a neurosurgeon. So nice. very wide nice. specialty. Yeah, it seems like it's a, the neurosurgery umbrella is uh, pretty massive. Um, so that, that's great. So those are some uh, subspecialties. You want to give us a quick run-through of uh, some, some rewards and challenges with neurosurgery? Absolutely, absolutely. So I will start by saying that neurosurgery is an incredibly rewarding specialty. Not compared to other specialties. Every specialty has their own rewards. Um, neurosurgery, I feel like, is a specialty of extremes. Our highs are super high, and our lows are really, really low. And that's, that's just a direct result of we treat the most fragile part of the body. And we treat the least resilient, if you will, and the least forgiving part of the body, where a millimeter in the brain is a mile anywhere else in the body. And same with the spinal cord. Right. If you, if you cause a small infarction in the spinal cord, they become paraplegic or even quadriplegic, right? If you, if you cause an avulsion of uh, a carotid branch or the anterior choroidal artery when you're resecting a tumor, not, not rupture the vessel, just a small avulsion, they can become paraplegic for the rest of their life of speech difficulty. So, and, and this is a vessel that's a millimeter thick in diameter. So just in terms of fragility and, uh, you know, unrelenting, uh, non-forgiven, uh, non-forgiveness, uh, as a result of this, our highs are high and our lows are low. So our rewards are incredibly rewarding. Um, we have the ability to cure people of cancer through surgical means, taking out a, a brain tumor, in many cases provides a cure, um, in epilepsy, we're able to change people's lives. We're able to let people drive again, let people go to school, let people have a normal social life. Um, same in the case of Parkinson's disease, people are, we, are, we enable people to walk again. Um, in spine surgery, a patient can come in with a herniated disc and a foot drop and not be able to walk, and in an hour, they can wake up and be totally normal again. We're able to make huge changes. And this is, this is one of the things that really drew me to surgery is we're very concrete sequential. We're very simple-minded in surgery. We're not, we're not behind the mindset of, hey, I'll try something and then come back in a couple of weeks. If it doesn't work, I'll try something else. We like the direct fix. And because of that, we have instant gratification in surgery. We know exactly right away if what we did worked or not. 
And as incredibly powerful as that is, that can also be just as disappointing. Um, going to some of the challenges, we often have many bad outcomes in neurosurgery. And that's not because we're bad surgeons per se, but that's because the disease we treat, as I just mentioned, is very unforgiving. Um, we deal with patients who have severe traumatic brain injury, who by the time we meet them, they're in a state where they're never going to wake up. We see patients who come in with a ruptured aneurysm who are either in a comatose state or in a semi-comatose state that, you know, uh, despite the intervention you might perform on them, they might not improve from a neurological standpoint. So there are, again, the, the spectrum is really broad in neurosurgery, um, but that also, I, I think of almost as gambling. Right. Mm -hmm. The more you pay into it, the bigger potential gain, but also the bigger potential loss. And yeah, unfortunately, in, in, in this context, we're playing with life. And that's why it's not for the faint of heart. You, this job is very serious, and there has to be a certain level of intensity toward it. Mm -hmm. But if you put in the time and the effort and you do the right things for your, by your patients, you're going to have good outcomes, and your patients are going to thank you for it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the highs and lows, like you mentioned, it's in every specialty, but especially in neurosurgery where the stakes are so high. Um, and the, uh, the amount of pressure on these little movements that you make is, is pretty, pretty, uh, immense. So I, c I commend you for that, my friend. Um, you know, I'll just diagnose it and send it your way. <laughs> I won't be say, doing if, if I haven't scared people away, maybe I, that's that number now. <laughs> But let's, let's finish up just by talking very briefly. I know we're running short on time here, but we're going to just talk briefly on some facts and some myths of neurosurgery. And I feel like while a lot of specialties have their own uh, misconceptions, I feel like neurosurgery, just by being the extreme that it is, often carries a lot of misconceptions. So I just want to briefly clear some of these up. Starting with the yeah, facts. Yeah, go for it. So I already mentioned it. Neurosurgery is a very diverse field. You treat lots of different diseases, lots of different disorders. You're never doing the same thing every day, even if you're a subspecialist. subspecialist. Technically very challenging, again, I just mentioned. You not just need the tactile skills, but uh, a millimeters a mile in this field. And mm -hmm. you often pay the consequences for small mistakes. Um, we talked about earlier, there's a very strong academic and research component to neurosurgery. You have to be interested in research and moving the field forward. If you're not, A, you're not gonna enter the field because no one's gonna accept you. Um, but B, th this really isn't the generation of neurosurgeons we want. We want people who are interested, who are going to be contributors in expanding our knowledge base of neurosurgery. Uh, it's incredibly rewarding. Again, I just spent the last five minutes talking about that. We don't have to be a dead horse, um, but the rewards are very high in neurosurgery. And uh, finally, it's true, neurosurgery is extremely well compensated. If not the highest, it's one of the highest paid specialties. And even though we do have the longest training program, um, just because of the reimbursement rates for a lot of the procedures that we do, because we are operating on such a high fidelity area, neurosurgeons tend to be well compensated, especially relative to other surgical specialties. So these are all facts. Mm -hmm. These are all true things about the fields. Now, on the other side, some common misconceptions of the field are people make miscon the misconception that all of our patients are comatose. They often use the slang term that they're all vegetables, that you know these are patients that will never wake up and they're just 
on the breathing tube and on the feeding tubes for the rest of their life. And this isn't true. While we do have bad outcomes and we have patients who have very severe illnesses, uh, some of which are non-reversible, we have many patients and the vast majority of our patients do not have this level of neurological decline. So just wanted to rebuke that myth very yeah. quickly. And I was going to say, I feel like that's a big part of your job satisfaction too. You get to change people's lives uh, in a pretty tremendous way. Like you said, you have that instant gratification um, and you, you're also able to see these patients on the mend when they go to rehab and, and see their, you know, see them at outpatient follow-up and whatnot. Exactly. Uh, which is pretty great. And that, I have to tell you, Chris, that's the best part of my day is mm -hmm. seeing someone after a horrible trauma who may be in a coma for one to two weeks and then seeing them in clinic six months later awake, walking and talking and, and coming in with their spouse. It's the best thing because you, you so distinctly remember them being there having no functions of life and just totally turned the corner. It's, it's such an amazing thing to see. It just makes you remember how amazing the human body is and how it, the amazing ability it has to recover. It's truly fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? That, that, that's your pitch, ladies and gentlemen, that, that right there, that's the pitch for neurosurgery. Uh, so you want to be a neurosurgeon. I think that's what we should call this, uh, this little segment. So you want to be a Let's whatever. Uh, so it. we'll, we'll do that, but thank you so much for, uh, talking with us today. Uh, you know, it's a little bit longer than normal this episode, but I think there's a lot to talk about in such a vast, uh, field of medicine and hopefully we'll continue this uh over the next couple weeks we have some other guests lined up with different specialties uh and uh we'll, we'll be we'll be cranking out these episodes this new year guys uh so thanks for staying with us always uh res life fam um and dr schuper again thank you it was a it was a good good talk thank you guys appreciate you listening bye everybody